Grant us listening ears and ready hearts, almighty God, to hear your word preached. Fortify my mouth and soul to proclaim your message faithfully, and may your Holy Spirit water our hearts to receive your promises, that we might be flourishing fountains of the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can probably tell by the goatee and the added weight, I am not Ben Wagner uh, this morning or really any morning. Um, We will be praying um, along with other needs for our church family, uh, for uh, Ben who uh, suffered a back injury this week, and uh, Josie, are we on good authority to say he is recovering? He's on on the men, which which is great to hear. interesting thing was it was uh, the 26th, so it would have been Thursday. I was at uh, Half Price Books uh, doing some post-Christmas shopping, um, and you do that at Half Price Books because there are books there, of course. Um, But I remember, and I've told a couple of you uh, this story, um, I had been uh, in the process of gathering different things, and one of the things that caught my eye was one of these uh, color-by-number coloring books for adults, uh, the, the mindfulness ones that sort of uh, ease away the stress from your life. And I wasn't feeling stressful at that moment, but I thought, you never know, in the near future, something might come up, and I might need a resource to to color and delight myself in. And I kid you not, two minutes later, Ben texted saying, hey, can you preach? This Sunday. So uh, I, I've been uh, dividing my time between preparing or, or, or um, re-preparing uh, this sermon and uh, coloring rather furiously over the last few days. But um, <clears throat> nonetheless, um, uh, so thank you also for your flexibility in terms of substituting this for what was in the lectionary. We're going with our Daniel 3 passage, and uh, we had enough in there uh, to put on one page to give you all the gist, and uh, I'll kind of fill in some other details as we go along. But um, it's uh, this doesn't seem like a Christmas tide sermon, but with the interjection and um, of of Jesus Christ into the scenario with the three young men in the fiery furnace, uh, it seemed rather appropriate uh, for for this Sunday. Uh, but uh, even though uh, there's a difference between their uh, trials and our trials, we probably don't get up to the body temperature that they might have experienced there uh, in Babylon, uh, but we do go through a number of issues and hardships ourselves, and uh, we can probably, if we had time, enumerate a number of those difficulties uh, that we are either presently going through or have gone through in the past, or we can see them coming up in the future. Uh, the trials can be very trying. Uh, this happens at different points throughout human history. It was actually during the 1948 Israeli War for Independence that uh, Jerusalem uh, was largely surrounded by Arab forces who were, who were bombing the city, making life rather difficult for the surviving Israeli population and the Israeli army, the Haganah. 
Uh, and the, the idea was put forward that, you know, we've got a couple of um, escape routes uh, past the flanks of the Arab siege uh, in which we can probably get the women and children out. The thought was you at least have a chance of getting them to relative safety. Uh, but also, that's not such a, a burden on the rationing of food and water to the Jerusalem population. And it fell to the military governor of Jerusalem during that time, a Canadian lawyer by the name of Dov Joseph, who eventually ended up serving uh, in the Israeli Knesset over the following two decades. It fell to Dov Joseph to make that decision. Uh, do we get the women and children out of Jerusalem, and what escape routes do they take? And Dov Joseph made the very firm, yet at that time very controversial decision, no, the women and children stay. Now, that created quite an uproar, not only in the general population, but also uh, within the leadership uh, of the military endeavor at the time. But Joseph had, had a reason for this. He theorized that the fighting spirit of the Israeli army would go to a fever pitch if they knew that their wives and children were just a hair's breadth from death behind them. Trials, he believed, could have their benefits. And uh, looking back, because as Soren Kierkegaard reminds us, at least he did before he died, um, that uh, life is live forward but understood backward, we can see the value of some trials. I think we can also say, as a number of Israelis then would probably have said in that moment, that you can get kind of desperate within the clutches of your desperation. But we face these types of situations, and if we're sharp, uh, we'll ask the question, what does this situation, this trial, this hardship demand of me? Because life as a follower of Jesus is not all steak and brownies. Apologies to any vegans and people allergic to chocolate. The, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego trio finds that this moment is less than ideal. Fiery furnace is not really what anybody, uh, any red-blooded individual would sign up for. But through this narrative, we do discover that we face these times when they hit us head on, and we do so in the power and the nearness of Jesus Christ. And if we identify uh, from this passage the nature of our trials, and we cling to Jesus during those trials, then perhaps we can face the trials of faith faithfully. So uh, we will look at that um, uh, uh, both of those items. First of all, we see the timing of trial, how it hits us, and what our response should be. Because the whole moment here uh, in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 3 is really stacked against our three young men. Now, uh, backstory is, and you can read this in Daniel 1 and 2, that they had been brought out from Jerusalem as part of an initial conquest uh, of the Babylonian Empire 
empire against Jerusalem, and some of the best and brightest from Israel had been taken out, these three, Daniel also um, among them, and they had been instructed in how to serve the new regime in Babylon. Uh, And they had been given uh, positions of relative authority there. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar, the the king, the the emperor of the greatest empire on earth at that time, uh, decides that we're going to up the ante a little bit. Um, In the initial part of this chapter, he makes an image of gold. Uh, And once you convert this to American units, you find that it's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Uh, which is pretty imposing. Not only that, it says he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the plain was not this place out in the sticks. Uh, Dura was pretty much a suburb of Babylon, so this is practically right outside of the imposing city walls uh, of the capital of the empire. In addition, all government officials are commanded to be there for what uh, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar would uh, term some mandatory fun, uh, to worship the statue. So, so you have this imposing statue. You have it right outside the walls of the capital city. The emperor, the king, is going to be there. Every government official is going to be there. And the command is, when you hear the music, bow down to the statue that has been set up. Interestingly enough, the word set up, that construction is used nine times in the passage as if Nebuchadnezzar is propping himself up uh, to be greater than what he was. So uh, we have a scenario when God's followers here are boxed in, they are pressured to conform, they are, uh, there is a lot, uh, they're in the crucible of being told to cave to this order. Uh, Now we might think about some areas of our lives, uh, perhaps, where we feel consistently set up uh, to be torn down. Uh, and and we, we may not, you know, there, there could be some um, collegiality here between us and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, because we live in a Babylonian culture of our own today, where we are pressured to bow down to everything that does not affirm the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, And we may be tempted and frustrated uh, to put things in the place of Jesus Christ himself. But there can also be another reaction. Uh, We don't find it in this text, uh, but but, uh, but there there is that possibility, and it's what these three young men fight against, Uh, that we might uh, succumb to, and that is complaining why we have to go through the time of trial. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily, um, you know, put on uh, pop music and dance uh, to our trials necessarily, but we do have to ask ourselves, I think, uh, what do we believe? Uh, the Christian life entails. Jesus even told his disciples the night before his death, the world will hate you. I mean, absolutely fomenting hate you. Uh, and um, we, we have to wonder, you know, what, what do we believe, not just about Jesus, but about the journey of faith itself? Do we think that we should be danger-free? What do we expect? I kind of ran into that in, on another angle. Um, my freshman year at Covenant College, 
uh, where I get there as a you know, freshly minted history major, uh, eager and everything, and I was able um, uh, to, to, to take a course called The Age of Europe. Uh, it turned out to be from a professor who grew to be a great uh, dear friend of mine, uh, the late uh, Dr. Louis Voskel. And uh, the, the, the sweep of this class was from the Renaissance all the way through uh, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. So, you know, 400 years in one semester. That's, that's, quite, that's quite a bite, uh, especially for a college freshman. Uh, and I remember we came to the point in, our, um, in the semester uh, where you come to midterms, you know that glorious week in October where fall break is so close and you can almost taste it, but you got to take an exam. Uh, and so because I hadn't really figured out how to study from a collegiate standpoint, I was putting in seven, eight hours of study before this, so I was pretty tired and ragged. And uh, we, we get the exam in front of us, and even with the benefit of a study guide beforehand, it, it pretty much bowled me over. Uh, and you, we had three different essays, questions. We had to write an essay response to each of them. There were also 10 people, places, or events, and we had to choose six or seven of them in which we would have to identify whatever it was and tell the historical significance of that person, place, or event. And we had to do all of this within 50 minutes. So my pen was smoking. And, and, and perhaps you, you, can, you can imagine, maybe you've been in these situations where you have to write a lot in a very little amount of time, and, and you feel the pain creeping in, uh, and, and you can't tell what's bone and what's muscle. The carpal tunnel syndrome hits you like that. I, I do remember walking back to my dorm afterwards, and my hand had formed into a claw. And, 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 I, and I couldn't unhinge it for a few hours afterwards. And I was complaining uh, to, to my friend and fellow history major, Sean Carrick, uh, about this. And that, that, was, that was just nuts. Now, Sean was a couple years ahead of me, um, and, and uh, he had kind of been through the game. And he just looked at me. I guess I was expecting sympathy uh, for, for, from Sean and, um, you know, bad choice on, on my part. And Sean said, well, what did you expect you're a history major. Deal with it. And that was very instructive. You know, if this is the path that I'm walking, there are certain things that come with that. There are certain difficulties that you have to be willing to weather. And here, they get that. That's one of the most bracing, reassuring things of this narrative here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get that. Their whole reaction, their whole posture is that we are going to take this head on. And they do so in uncompromising fashion. They do not negotiate they do not say, well, you know, we're followers of the Most High God. Uh, is, is there anything, is there any overlap, Nebuchadnezzar? Is there any sort of syncretism or comparative world religion we can do on the fly here that, that, that's a win-win? Nothing of that. They, they get back in his face. And what they show is this time of trial is also a time for wisdom for thoughtful reflection, but most of all, by their reaction here, 
their unwillingness to bow down, it is a time for unapologetic truth with no truce and no compromise. And that is what followers of Jesus, we must do as well. We do it as winsomely as we can, but we do not budge and we do not blend in. There was a point um, in the 1940s, uh, I forget which exact season it was in Major League Baseball, but the Philadelphia Phillies were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers in a regular season game at Brooklyn's Ebbets Field. And uh, Granny Hamner of the Phillies was up to bat, and he hit a smash, a base hit, into the outfield. Uh, and it was, it was far enough away where he felt like he could stretch the single into a double. Well, Duke Snyder grabs the ball, wheels around, and throws a dart to Pee Wee Reese, who's the shortstop covering second base. The throw comes in, and Pee Wee Reese puts the tag on, and Granny Hamner uh, slides in under the tag and just beats it. And the umpire at the second base that day was a fellow by the name of Beans Reardon. And when Hanra slid under the tag and got in, uh, Beans Reardon uh, gave the out sign with his thumb, but he said, safe. <laughs> and Pee Wee looked at him and said, Beans, do you realize what you just done? Beans said, yeah, I know. He should have given the safe sign uh, when he said safe, but he gave the out sign Instead, and Hamner, just sitting there in the dirt, said, Well, Beans, what am I? And Reardon said, Well, there are the three of us here who heard me call you safe. But there are 35,000 Brooklyn Dodger fans who saw me signal you out. And Hamner keeps persevering to the end. He says, What am I, Beans? And Reardon said, you're out. Because you see, you can't swim against the tidal wave of 35,000 Brooklyn Dodger fans. But that is, we, we, we are called to a much more immense task in the Babylonian culture of our own day. We are not to blend. The Bible never says be careful, be calculating, be comparative. The Bible says be holy. Be delightfully, distinctively different, but be willing to do that in the time of trial. Well, it would, we could get the idea if we left it off at that point in the passage that it is up to us and we do this in our own strength, but, but what we find is there is a trust that we take into this trial. Notice there's no heroic moment here where, there, where Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind and says, oh, wow, you guys have some principle. Oh, we'll bypass it. No, he throws them right. In fact, he gets madder than he's ever gotten uh, in, in his life. And so they go into the furnace. And so we have overtones here in, in a way of what uh, God says to his people in Isaiah 43, where he says, when you go through the fire, I'll be with you, you will not be burned. When you go through deep waters, the waves will not overwhelm you. God promises his presence. He doesn't say we're kept away from danger, but that he will be present with us. 
and, and what we see here from, from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their response is this great sense of, of freedom. Not that they know what is going to be on the other end necessarily. They can imagine, but they do leave the results to God. In verses 16 through 18, they answer and say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Meaning, we don't need to defend God. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, meaning if for whatever reason God designs, decides that we roast in there, And we go from rare to well done in the matter of two seconds. So be it. We're still not going to bow down to your statue. We are still going to serve the Lord. The lack of manipulation. They're like, whatever God decides is going to be okay as long as we're going down God's path. Uh, Reminds me of um, one of the quotes from Richard Sibbs, who was... um, uh, an Anglican churchman uh, in the 17th century, one of those who found a way to be both Anglican and Puritan at the same time, uh, which I think is wonderful. But uh, he, he said uh, one of the, the things that he's known for, for saying is, cast yourselves into the arms of Christ, and if you perish, perish there. See, we tend to want freedom and deliverance, which is all very well and good. But I'm afraid, if you're anything like me, sometimes you will exhibit a mathematical faith and try to enslave God during the process. We would never put it exactly that way, so I'm going to lean over and fall on the sword for the whole team and just say that's what we're doing, okay? Because I know it's what I do. We're, We're like, Lord, I want deliverance from this time of trial. Please make it happen, and I would really like it to turn out this way. So it's almost like we're putting our hand on the throttle, our hand on the steering wheel, where we want God's deliverance, but we want it done in a certain way to our exact benefit and our design. And we assume how God thing, how God should work things out, uh, but the proper posture is actually completely abandoning ourselves to his will. It uh, reminds me of uh, John Burke, who's a pastor at Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, uh, talks about sailboats and how they're a great analogy for faith. Because sailboats have no power of their own. They are completely dependent upon the power of the wind. Uh, and so the key to sailing well is not going to be paddling the sailboats. It's not going to be blowing into the sail, because that's just ridiculous, unless that's your thing. Uh, But it's in receiving the force of the wind and then adjusting the sail's position to utilize the wind's power. But in all of it, you are moving forward only on the basis of what the wind does for your sailboats. It's a very powerful point that we see here made by these young men. Just the the freedom in trusting God and complete abandonment into his will. But there's something else we see that it's not only a positioning of ourselves for trust, but it's also who shows up and is the object of our trust. God shows up in, in, in the 
in a very personal way. You can almost imagine that Nebuchadnezzar is having a wonderful, sumptuous meal because that's what evil pagan emperors do uh, when they're watching an execution. Uh, so he's having his meal. He's got his wine and everything. He's looking at it. He's like, wait, whoa, 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 one, two, three. And he almost spews his Chianti because he's like, there's one more person in the furnace that should not be in there. And everybody's uh, it's all hands on. They're like, what do you see? What do you see? And he says, I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, he's speaking out of his pagan experience and Babylonian religion, but there's, I, I think this is put in Scripture because Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing there is some level of divine authority in that fourth person that does not reside in the others. Some people have postulated maybe this is an angelic ambassador. But with Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, I think we may be on better ground to say that this is a physical pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus himself in which he shows up before he shows up, okay, um, a few hundred years in advance. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this, and, and the change over him is, is stunning. He realizes that God, not he, is truly all-powerful, and he even confesses it such at the beginning of chapter 4. The Most High God, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. But the, to return to what's afoot here, the trio of young men here see that God is the one who saves. Doesn't that speak to us? That we don't, you know, we don't have to, in the midst of our trials, we don't, knowing that Jesus is there, present in the midst of our hardship, it doesn't mean we have to masochistically go looking for trials. You know, we, we don't swagger into them saying, whoo, bring on the pain, Lord, I cannot wait for what you're going to teach me through this. That's, you know, I tend to run from people who do that. Thankfully, I don't know many people like that. But, but doesn't this speak to us in a way where we see just maybe our trials and testings, as they were for our trio here, can be designed for our benefits rather than for our destruction? We see that God is not remote, that he is present with his people, that this pre-incarnate edition of Jesus, he arrives on scene. Uh, and we could wa always wonder, why are they going through this? But Jesus does not have to be the explanation to your questions. He's the one you need. Uh, he, he treasures you by descending to you in the midst of life's worst nightmares. Perhaps you've gone through intense circumstances recently and truly deep in the core of your bones, I would wager you don't want the explanation for why this is happening, but you want someone to be there with you. Eleven years ago when we lost our youngest, Jordan, 
At 19 months of age, there were a lot of people who came over to our house over the coming days. And the thing is, I don't remember any of the conversations. I don't remember the subject matter. I don't know what they said. I remember that George Stulak from Memorial Presbyterian Church read Psalm 86 to us, which was memorable. But, but the, the rest of the, I mean, people could have been talking about lawnmower maintenance or the history of the Luxembourg Army. It would not have mattered what they said. What mattered to us were people were there sharing in our sorrow and in our trial. In Jesus, God reminds us we are not alone. In the midst of your hardships, he draws near to you. He is God with us, Emmanuel proving that, as Corey Ten Boom once said, and I would say she's an authority on this, having survived a concentration camp in the, among the Nazis, where she says, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still, exhibited faithfully time and time again in the person of Jesus. There was a story um, from uh, the time... It was during the 19th century, uh, William Gladstone was uh, in one of his four uh, times as uh, prime minister when, uh, when it was during the reign of Queen Victoria. And uh, uh, th- during this time, uh, there was a rather ordinary man um, uh, who uh, his one job was to sweep the sidewalks and clean the streets near Parliament House. And he was known by name, not much deeper than that, uh, to most of those who had business to do in the area. And there, there was one day that this street cleaner went missing. Uh, there was a Christian worker, a city missionary, who uh, inquired about his absence and uh, through different inquiries uh, found, uh, was able to find that, uh, that this person's residence. He was in an attic room that was sparsely furnished and, and the, the, the old man, the, the street cleaner, was in bed recovering from an illness. And so looking around that, uh, that attic room, the worker asked uh, the the, uh, the, the cleaner, well, don't you get lonely? Uh, d- does anybody ever visit you? To which the street cleaner said, oh, yes, uh, yeah, Mr. Gladstone visited me. <laughs> and and, and the, the missionary said, beg your pardon, uh, I, I thought you said Mr. Gladstone. You mean a different Mr. Gladstone. You don't mean the prime minister. To which the street cleaner said, oh, no, yes, the prime minister. Mr. Gladstone visited me today. He sat right there on that stool, and he read the Bible to me. It's rather interesting that Gladstone, who had a very hefty political to-do list that day, left it all to the side and sat in the attic of a street cleaner who wasn't feeling up to snuff. And that is a pale analogy to what Jesus does, but it does capture some of the heart of our Savior and Lord, who, as Paul tells us in Philippians, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, did not conclude that the heavenly environment was something to be hoarded for himself, but made himself nothing. He descended 
to us and lived the life that we were incapable of and died the death we deserved and felt our every experience and our trials. And he draws near you and me today, just as he did many years ago in an afflicted world, and he has promised to do so and again and again in the furnace of all of our life's trials. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for dwelling among us in the fire and deep waters of our experiences, and that no matter what the trials may be, we can reach forth and grasp your nail-scarred hands. Cause us, O Savior, through the work of your Holy Spirit to digest your promises and to embrace them with full faith, that with loyal and trusting hearts we may follow you, who with your Father and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all the ages. Amen.